Well, uh, before I start, just want to remind you that you can text a question. Uh, and so if you have questions about the sermon or Christianity in general, um, please feel free to send a question. Now, uh, you know, we've all played the game uh, of kind of being forced to tell the truth, making a promise, but your fingers are crossed, right? And then you show all your fingers are uncrossed, and then you tell people, well, actually, my toes were crossed, right? So you do whatever it takes to not have to tell the truth. Promises are only as good as the ability for someone to make me keep my promise, and that doesn't stop when we're kids. We live in a world where we must be forced to keep our commitments. We must live in fidelity only as much as people are able to force me to live in fidelity. So you remember how we talked about the thread of all these commandments, you know, it, it runs through our most sacred beliefs. But human beings have a very sacred belief in our right to live a non-committed life, to be free of attachments, to be able to choose if and when and how we must be committed, and then only to be committed on our own terms. Kurt Vonnegut said, my own feeling is that if adultery is wickedness, then so is food. Both make me feel so much better afterwards. It's not unusual of a view of sexuality or the commitments that we make. So what do we do? We look at this commandment, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have an option here this morning. We can hammer each other about how exactly we don't live up to this commandment. Or we can try to think about it in terms of how God wants us to hear it this morning, which is to see both the power of it, the reality of it, the difficulty of it, but also seeing why God gives it to us and the goodness and mercy present in that. So for the Exodus community, right, I just want to talk about this for a second. This call to live in fidelity was countercultural. Do not commit adultery as appropriate as it seems in our context, well-mannered, whatever else. It was shockingly unique. This wasn't a statement now of property rights. Hey, this person belongs to you, so don't let somebody else take them. Now it was this blanket statement that uh, God is making through Moses that marital bonds matter. And why? Well, we talked about it a little bit as we discussed how to honor your father and mother, but the reality is God has chosen to give us a picture of his care for us through intact loving families. All right, through wholehearted commitments being made and kept, that this is God's intended way to tell the story of his grace. So he gives us this picture of marriage. He's a faithful God. God also communicates spiritual unfaithfulness through the image of adultery, and we'll talk about that later. So it's clear that like marital fidelity, it's a picture God chooses to use. It matters. It's a chief reflection of his character, of his image. Now, that, that reality shows us uh, why God believes the way, or why God explains divorce the way that he does, all right? So, look, last week we talked do not murder, and I stepped about, uh, on about 18 landmines in that process, okay? It's okay. We're all still here, most of us, except those who said, I'm never coming back to that place again. They're preaching the Bible. It's scary, and I understand that. This morning, stick with me as we discuss this. I promise you that what we're going to hear as much as anything else is not just the, the difficulty, the power of this commandment, but also how God meets us in the middle of it, right? So I just want you to hear a couple of things here. One of the ethical questions is gonna deal with divorce. Well, how do we handle divorce? Well, here are two passages in the scriptures that we want to apply. One is uh, from Mark 10, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
okay? So, so the first is just to understand that, uh, that God's prohibition against adultery is driven from the fact that these two are one flesh. And so uh, marriage is supposed to be that kind of unity. Now, if marriage is just a kind of contract saying, well, you know, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can do this and you can do this, then it's just a contractual issue. But what God shows us is that it's actually a biological, spiritual, emotional connection that shouldn't be dissolved. The two become one flesh. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus kind of further elaborates as he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we wonder, first of all, what is God talking about here as he discusses divorce? What he's saying is both marriage and divorce need to happen on terms of one flesh unity. So when that one flesh unity is, is, is irreparable, when it's broken and irreparable through uh, an adulterous relationship, through abuse or abandonment, then what you have is it's already been broken. The covenant's already been broken and therefore divorce is appropriate. But Jesus clarifies that this is why this matters. This is why divorce sometimes, as awful as it can be, it may also serve the purposes of God. That even here where a covenant has been broken irreparably, that part of the way that God begins to heal these two people is by dissolving what's already been officially dissolved, <laughs> but dissolving it, literally dissolving it, divorcing. So you have this picture of, of kind of one flesh unity describing marriage. And I want to just say that uh, Christianity in that way is kind of good for marriage. When it says marriage is not just saying, uh, it's the old ball and chain, I'm connected to this person, but it's saying it ought to be one flesh unity. This is the way it ought to be practiced. This is without comparison in the ancient world, this view of marriage. Christianity informs marriage in a way that's done nowhere else. So one flesh unity is what we see is going on. So you have these, uh, you have kind of these ideas of, uh, you know, what, what is allowable under the law, how we pursue divorce and why we can pr pursue divorce and why does it matter? Well, it matters because it keeps that person who divorces their spouse, who leaves them, who pushes them away. What it does is it says, this person can't call themselves Christian while they chuck someone out of their lives for no reason. as an issue of convenience. All right? So what, what God is trying to do is to put together and say, look, part of being a, a believer in Christ is to live in this kind of unity with people. So here's what Jesus does, okay? And if that's not difficult enough, then Jesus kind of expands this. And he says, look, the idea of marital fidelity is not just the regulation of sexual purity, okay? It's not just that issue. Now it's this beauty of wholeheartedness really committing, man, really owning commitment, all right? Really being sold all out to the idea that you belong to this other person, that these two people belong to each other. So Jesus starts to expand it. Here's what he says. Matthew chapter five. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks, Jesus, <laughs> right? He has expanded this definition now of what faithfulness looks like to say, well, what really matters now is not just how you practice in, in kind of a, a sort of uh, physical purity, 
but also whether or not you give yourself truly to someone else. And you might ask the question, well, why does he only mention men? Why doesn't he mention women? Can't women do this? Well, first of all, let me say, yes, absolutely, women can be guilty of this. And God makes clear when he talks about lust, he doesn't define it as only men or women. But the question is, why would he define it this way here? And my answer to you is because the audience to which he's speaking anticipates that women don't break this command, but men freely can. That women, of course, women are not going to stray. Because in a culture like this, you'd be in some serious trouble as a woman, straying. But men, not so much. If you're looking for some verification of that, Augustine of Hippo, uh, you're talking about, you know, 4th century uh, AD, he discusses this commandment and he says, essentially, that men seem to believe that only women are bound by this command, that they freely practice adultery without any concern. He's preaching to his congregation. He's preaching to a bunch of Christians, and he's saying, you've got to stop doing this. <laughs> so if you're trying to understand how widely spread this belief on the idea of adultery was, here you have even the Christian church being informed about, hey, by the way, let's stop committing adultery, okay? This is not good. So, so obviously, you know, this is an expansive command that Jesus is bringing, and he's hitting people right between the eyes, and he's saying, it's bigger than this. It involves your, heart, your whole heart, too. So the goal here is much bigger than not committing adultery now in Jesus. It's bigger than even keeping a marriage together or staying together for the kids or whatever. Ultimately, Jesus is making clear that wholehearted, wholeheartedness is the issue, all right? We have to give ourselves completely to someone else. This is the biblical vision of marriage. We are to be one flesh. Not two people who have an understanding, not two people who have a contract that this is how they're going to stay together, but that you're not even free to give your private longings to someone else. In the biblical vision of marriage, you're not even free to give your private passion, your private desire to some other person. Affection, lust, passion, desire, sex, it belongs to the other person. So we do our, our best kind of, so do our best kind of emotional and physical efforts, those belong to the other person. This seems odd, okay? I, I admit this is a high bar for what marriage is called to be. Don't even look with lustful intent. Check your heart, look at your attitudes. Something no one else may ever even see or know. God says that belongs to the other person. Fidelity in the heart. That's Jesus' aim as he reinterprets the seventh commandment for us. So, so why raise the stakes so high? This is the question. You know, why couldn't we just say, just don't commit adultery and we'll just keep it there? You know, We'll just do that. That's good enough. Because Jesus' kingdom is bigger than not having sex with someone else who isn't your husband or wife. Right? Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom for wholehearted people. That's his point. I want you to be wholehearted. Right? Not just contractually obligated, but wholehearted. People are not only involved in faithful living, but have faithful hearts. So how do we begin to be changed in a way that allows us to do that? Because that is a high bar. And I don't know about you, I'm not, uh, I may, you may be surprised by my body and my physique, I am not a high jumper, Okay? So the question is, how do I spiritually do this? How do I pursue this kind of wholeheartedness? What do I do? 
Well, the scriptures talk about adultery not just as a physical uh, kind of transaction between two people. It also talks about it as a spiritual exchange between us and God or the violation of that spiritual bond that we have uh, between us and God. So it, it happens when we don't live in fidelity to God, but we chase after other gods, right? Our spiritual husband is the way that uh, the scriptures talk about God. And, and basically when we violate that and chase after others, God uses this imagery of adultery to say, don't be an adulterous person. But what also happens is that God says, if you're going to be wholehearted in your relationships, I must make you wholehearted spiritually. I must make you wholehearted. Grace weaves wholeheartedness into us. When the fabric of marriage is torn, it's that grace that begins to make us whole. So when we see that God is the bridegroom, this is the way that the scriptures take us. When we see that God himself is the bridegroom who is faithful and committed to us, who can make us faithful, that's when we begin to be kind of weaved back together. One of the things that that does for us, I think, just by way of application, is that it can make us grateful in these relationships, you know? And whether you're married or single, practicing wholeheartedness in our relationships is application for all of us. To, to be able to be committed to people and to keep our commitments to them, to love them well, all right? To not run away just when it becomes inconvenient. It's a quality that we ought to share, not just with our spouses, but with our friends. So something that happens is we, you know, as, as kind of God weaves this wholeheartedness into us, it makes us grateful. We see the beauty of what we've been given. In our marriages, we become grateful for our spouse and not just in a fake way right? But for real, you know, we begin to actually care about this person and to delight in them and to delight in their quirks. And yeah, they're quirks, okay? And sometimes they aren't fun, but we start to delight in how God has created this person. We start to see them as a person who's been given as a gift. We have to start to see with eyes of faith, who is this person that God, this good God, my spiritual husband, the bridegroom has given me this person. And we begin to grow in gratefulness. And let me just tell you that gratitude is a, it's not just a manners kind of thing. It is a spiritual discipline to work toward gratitude, to believe the best about the other person. It requires work. And just, again, by way of application, let me give you one more. If we're going to talk about being wholehearted, I want to encourage you to practice. Now, I hate, you know, I want to encourage you. Whenever a Christian tells you to, I want to encourage you, you know, put on the helmet. But this is a good encouragement, okay? I want to encourage you to practice wholeheartedness by kind of making appointments for whole, wholeheartedness within your uh, marriage relationship or file it away, you know, for when the Lord may bring you into that world or file it away for your close friendships to say, I should set aside time to practice wholeheartedness in this relationship. So in marriage, what that looks like is saying, I know it seems lame and it seems unromantic, but man, set some appointments for like talking, all right? And, and like not like talking via text or talking with text or while it's in front of you or the TV or whatever else, but actually saying, okay, at this time, we're actually going to sit and, and look at each other and have a conversation, and we're going to practice vulnerability. I'm going to practice wholeheartedly giving myself to this other person by telling them what's actually happening in my life. If you want to know how we get to physical infidelity, it's fruit on a tree that begins by pretending that you don't owe the other person your whole life. 
It begins with emotional infidelity. It begins with withholding ourselves from the other person. So make appointments for that awkward conversation. And recognize you may have to start with like five minutes, all right? We're going to do this for five minutes. We're going to have a conversation. It's okay if that's where you are in your marriage. If where you are in your marriage is, I have to set only five minutes to have a totally vulnerable conversation with you. Man, that's God's work. Let me tell you something else that may make you squeamish. You should set appointments for sex, too. That practicing physical wholeheartedness with this other person may require the unromantic thing where you say, this is when it's gonna happen, right? And everybody rejoices. Put on your best cologne and your wonderful clothes and walk in there in polyester and make it happen. Um, but look, let me, let me just tell you that uh, I know, man, Everybody's, okay, everybody's allowed one sex sermon, okay? Everybody's allowed one. Um, but, but listen, uh, yeah, it's, and it's a great Sabbath activity too. I mean, not to make this more awkward, but it is like really recognizing the goodness of God's grace and glory. In our, okay. Um, all right, so anyway, uh, so moving past that. So the, the difficulty of this call to fidelity is this, and I, I wanna be uh, helpful and, and fair, and to say this, we know where it's difficult for us to live lives of fidelity. We know where our hearts are frayed. We know where it's hard to trust. We know where it's hard to live this out. And so when we read God telling us, look, you, you need to live this life of fidelity, we feel it like, oh, I'm a failure. I know where I'm not faithful. And we want to hide. We want to run away. I want, to, I want to encourage you not to do that. Hold on, as we see the way that God deals with that fraying, okay? But first, I have to touch on yet another really fun topic, and just put it this way. To continue our discussion of difficult topics, one of the substitutions for wholeheartedness, the way that God's calling us to live our lives, has been the widespread use of pornography. Now, I'm sure that the problem of pornography is not unique to our day. Today's digital access was yesterday's hidden magazine yesterday's cable channel, the desire to experience sexuality in a self-centered way, it's not new, right? It's not. The question is, and just again, dealing with the ethical issue, is the use of pornography adultery? So according to Jesus, it's absolutely adultery of the heart. There's no doubt about that, right? This person is not, they're not giving their whole selves to their spouses. They're using sex as if they were not married at all, denying the other person the gift of their sexuality. Again, the point's not to make a list of things that we cannot do, okay? The, the point is to understand why Jesus says that we have to live this way for the good of the other person. He's showing us that marriage has a higher ceiling than to prevent us from a life of promiscuity. So pornography is a violation of that purpose in marriage as Jesus defines it, adultery of the heart. It's not okay, it, it violates one flesh unity. So I just want to say this, no spouse, male or female, should ever be told that one person's 50 shades of gray or the other person's internet porn habit is necessary and okay. Jesus' point is that this is not normative. This is not good. It's not a wink-wink kind of thing. Like, ah, you know, everybody does it. It spoils the beauty of marriage because it violates that unity. I know that might be painful to hear especially if you've experienced you being on the other side of that, the spouse who's stuck in that world. 
Now, while pornography use itself is not a biblical cause for divorce by itself, unrepentant use of it and an unwillingness to stop or deal with it is a violation of that one flesh unity and is irreparable if you're unwilling to deal with that. So hear me saying that. The Christian relationship, the Christian marriage that has free use of pornography in it is not biblical and is not marriage. I have to say it. And I also want to say this, that look, uh, for those of you who are struggling with this, if, if your partner struggles with pornography usage, I, I want to tell you this, and I'm going to step into my role as a pastor of 13 years and say that in all my experience, pornography is not about you. The pornography use of the other person is not about you. It, it's about you because it is offensive to you. It doesn't uncover a deficiency in you as the spouse of the person who's engaging in this, okay? I want you to know that this is not your failure. This is not your mistake. Often, use of things like this, they're used as escapes. When we feel we need a release of stress, when a person feels worried, hurt, broken in some way, these kinds of escapes happen. Pornography, gambling, all kinds of other things. Substance abuse, alcoholism. So I want us to put it a little bit in that framework and understand that for those who feel that they've been wounded so deeply, they believe that this must be because of something that they did that their spouse feels the need for pornography use. I just want you to hear that, okay? And it goes not just for pornography. It goes for uh, sexual promiscuity, premarital sex, marital affairs, all kinds of things. All of this is a part. It reveals a deep-seated need in us. It is connected to deeper stuff. So when God says, do not commit adultery, here's the good news. He's actually opening a door to profound work in our hearts. When he says, do not commit adultery for the person who's stuck in sexual immorality of some way, shape, or form, you should know that this is God opening the door for profound work of the Holy Spirit in your life, all right? It is God's commitment to heal us in those broken places. This is what opens the door to the way to wholeheartedness. This is why God talks about sex. It's deeply ingrained in who we are. And for those of you who may feel deep shame or failure in that area, okay, if this is you, if you're like, man, I struggle with this now or I did in the past or whatever else, please know that the Bible is very clear that sin, even sin that embarrasses or humiliates or grieves you deeply, that makes you feel ashamed, it's washed clean and forgiven. Can you hear me say that? that even sin that makes you feel deeply ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated. 1 John 5, 8, he's able to cleanse us from our sins. God understands that we feel polluted by our sin sometimes. And God says, I make you clean. And also know this, that no one, if you feel like you struggle in sexuality, you struggle to be pure in that area, and you, you no, obviously no one else must, well, we all fail to be wholehearted. We all fail to give ourselves fully to those things that we should. No one is fully pure. You are among friends. Cling to Jesus in that brokenness. Everybody take a breath. That is a lot. So wholeheartedness is about deep transformation. When God talks about sex in a way that's painful, it's good news. 
He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be faithful to the deepest parts of who we are. You might, you might think that this God, you know, because every, every time we struggle with something that God's word says, part of it is because we have faulty views of who God is, right? We don't see him as he is. And so you might be surprised to learn, okay? You might be surprised to hear this, that in contrast to the gods of the world who have to be pleased by their people all the time, who they're not sure if they're going to give you their care or their love until you prove that you're worth their care and love, the God of the scriptures does something very different. The God of the scriptures pursues his unfaithful people for faith, okay? This is where we get to see how God deals with the really tough world of sexuality. The story of the Bible, it's a drama of God's faithfulness for the unfaithful. If we're ever gonna be wholehearted, we have to understand that, okay? We have to see that it is this drama unfolding that slowly but surely, bit by bit, we start to see what is God doing? Wow, he really does care for unfaithful people. This is incredible, all right? This has to be the context for any kind of faithfulness on our behalf. For any person in your life who's struggling to live a life of fidelity, who's struggling with sexual brokenness, who's struggling with shame and pain, they have to understand that to follow God is to be a part of a drama that is about his faithfulness for our unfaithfulness. So it might seem like fidelity can rip our hearts to shreds, that to give ourselves wholly to someone and to trust them with our deepest selves, is all of that is to turn away. You know, all of that is enough to tear us in two. To live for one flesh unity might feel impossible, but what if I told you that the God that you serve this morning, that, that we've spoken about this morning, that we've prayed to this morning, from the very beginning, he knew that you and I would live not wholehearted lives. He knew we would put up a fight against faithfulness. He knew that he would be seeking his people, not responding to their seeking him, but that he would be seeking his people from the first page of the scriptures to the last. What if you knew that that was the God that you serve? Now, I shared this image with our New City 101 class last weekend, but in the, in the pages of Genesis, God makes a promise, right? He makes it to Abram before Abram graduates to Abraham, and the promise is this, I'm yours and you're mine. Sounds like a wedding, right? I'm yours and you're mine. That's the promise. In that day, when you made an agreement with someone, if the agreement was really important, you ratified it by taking animals and killing them, which sounds like how we practice our agreements today, right? You take your animals, you slaughter them, you cut them in half, you lay them out in two rows, right? You lay them out in two rows. Does anybody know what this is called? It's a contract. The Isle of Blood Covenant, right? Wonderful, which also is the name of my uh, heavy metal band, we play on Tuesdays, um, but uh, anyway, so you have these two, you have this aisle of blood, right? Two lines of animals cut in half, and what happens is the two people who are making the super important agreement walk through the middle, and I don't know, you know, they don't hold hands or anything, they just both walk through the middle of the aisle of blood, and what they're saying is, may I be like these animals if I don't keep my promise? May I be like these animals if I don't keep my promise? So God prepares Abram, and Abram's thinking the whole time. He's like, oh, I know what we're doing. We're going to keep a promise together, right? We're going to make this whole big aisle of blood, and then we're going to walk through it, and this is how it's all going to work. 
I can do this, except God turns the tables on him. He makes Abram fall into a trance-like state, and he's stuck there to watch as God does something horrifyingly beautiful. God walks through the aisle himself. He does not permit Abram to walk through it. Because Abram can't keep that promise. God knows from the beginning we're adulterers at heart. And if we're ever going to be made well, it's the God who walks through faithfully who can make us well. So he walks through. Of course he knows that fidelity tears us, tears us apart. Of course God knows. He knows that our fidelity, doesn't wake the, our fidelity doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So we want to cross our fingers and toes? God says, you can promise without your fingers crossed because I'm the one that makes you strong at all your weak places. It doesn't end there. God renews this promise again and again. If you want to, please don't chuck the Old Testament, man. It is a beautiful story of the way that God continues to reaffirm and keep his promise despite the fact that we don't want to keep it ourselves. So over and over again, from kings to patriarchs to judges, it's the story of God saying, oh, you've run away, but I'm coming for you. Over and over and over again. And then here come the minor prophets, one of which was told, go marry a prostitute so that you can tell my people, this is what I'm like. I'm the one who marries the adulterer. That's what I do. So you've got this beautiful story in the prophets unfolding, this story again and again where it says, look, don't forget, don't miss this. If you want to be faithful, it's because of my faithfulness. Isaiah 54 for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. He's using this marital language. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. With deep compassion, I will bring you back. Hosea, the prophet, called to live with a prostitute, says, And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Who's he talking to? He's talking to unfaithful ones. You'll call me my husband. Unbelievable. So the prophets say that we who are unfaithful at heart are being pursued by a bridegroom who will not stop until he has rescued us. Fidelity, physical, spiritual, otherwise. It doesn't just happen. Right? Fidelity doesn't just happen. Adulterers have to be unadulterated by the love of Jesus. The story of the scriptures is not that God marries a faithful bride, but that he makes us faithful by his faithful love for us. His grace makes us wholehearted. And the prophets then that tell that story are the entrance music for Christ himself, right? You have everything laid aside, everything's ready, and the scriptures tell us that at the proper time, Jesus came, and what did he do? He came into the world to be the great bridegroom who pursues us in person. He chases after sinners and tax collectors. We remember those stories. The centurion with little faith, he chases after that one, grieving parents and widows and people who say, I won't believe it until I see it physically. He chases after those people. Weary in every way from being wholehearted and being let down or being not wholehearted and being ashamed. He chases after them. He shows up in person to walk the aisle again for us. 
another aisle of blood, and we don't get to walk it. Instead, we stand around the cross and say, what just happened? And the Jesus Christ of the scriptures says, I am yours, and you are mine. I am the faithful one for unfaithful ones. We all have worries about this. When it looks like to give ourselves 100% without crossing our fingers, our toes, it's only possible when we know that we can trust God with our lives. That we can trust this God with our lives. We have to receive tremendous value and worth and hope from Christ the bridegroom. He washes the disciples' feet, then he says, now you can wash the feet of others. He goes first, acts first, takes vows first. That's what Jesus does. So that we can do the same in our world. And the entire purpose of the church now, this is where we leave it. This is where we go. The entire purpose of the church is not to be a people who've never failed to be faithful, but to be people who are being made faithful. Do you get that? Being made faithful. So that our faithful bridegroom Christ can take to himself a faithful bride in the end. That's the story. And what does he take us to? He takes us to a feast together in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you want to know what that feast is going to be, it's going to look like it's a little bit like this. You're going to stand at the table and God's going to say, unfaithful ones, I have made you faithful. And this is now your table with no shame and no fear and no sadness, no grief. Feast together in the new heavens and the new earth, the wedding supper of the lamb. And we finally get to walk the aisle because we've been made clean and faithful. We get to walk the aisle and to belong to God forever. Revelation 19, six through eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And all the Presbyterians said, amen. That's okay. God himself walks the aisle of blood that we might walk the aisle of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's us. We get to gather people in for that great feast so that the bride can be beautiful at last and faithful at last and true and wholehearted. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me pray.